I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Faith Common, and Faith is an estrinocologist. Welcome, Faith. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Adrian and Steve, for having me. And can we ask, what is an estrinocologist? Ah, an estrinocologist. I study that little fringe of land between the sea and the rivers um, and the water that is in there. And I study absolutely everything in it, from the mud and the, and their chemistry through to the bacteria and the algae and, of course, the fish that everyone always knows most estuaries for. So it's the area where the river meets the sea? That's a good description, although sometimes these areas end up quite salty, so that's a, a random description that sort of works most of the time. Okay. And the area where you specialise, would, would it be fair to say, is around the Coorong? I am now. That's because I live there. Um, I work in estuaries right around the world. Um, but I, about five years ago, I realised that I was living in metropolitan Adelaide. And I realised I was an awful long way, both from the sea and from an estuary. And uh, one of my clients said to me, we've got a house down here. It's near the Coorong. It's the largest wave-dominated estuary in Australia. It's the third longest navigable river in the world. Why aren't you here? And so I moved. And so I operate a, a little business with five staff out of a, a house in a town called Tintinara. Very nice. What did you, what did you a wave-operated? It's a, a wave-dominated estuary. So in other words, the tide is so small, the mouth, when you look at it, is, is tiny. Um, and so most of the water motion comes from the wind blowing up and down. So you can actually see water slop from one end of the estuary to the other because it's this 120-kilometre-long tongue running behind the, the primary dune. And so you can, you can stand there and you can be at one end and go, the water is this height and it's a metre higher down the other end. But just because the wind. That's very interesting. It is a very small mouth, uh, the body of water that's behind it. It's, it's <laughs> very, very small. It is, And yeah. the interchange is incredibly that. slow. Mm. It's a beautiful place. It is. I don't know much about the ecology of the Coorong, but it's beautiful to kayak on. Um, and you've got that really big sand dune between it and is it the Southern Ocean. Yes, so the Young Husband Peninsula. And, and when you're camping, you, all you hear is the, the waves from the Southern Ocean crashing into that sandbar. So yeah. pretty lucky that's there. It's pretty ferocious. It is. I, I remember sitting there um, at Long Point back in February and there's an Indigenous festival there where they do Indigenous dance. And we got the whale singer from the Great Australian Bite there and he's making these whale songs. And it sounded like there's this huge whale above us. It was really quite remarkable. And, of course, even though we were on the main section of the land, you could still hear the Southern Ocean crashing behind with these whale songs. It was quite uh, enchanting. I can imagine that would be amazing. Yeah. yeah, such an amazing place. I go down there just to see pelicans. Yeah, <laughs> aren't pelicans. they beautiful? <laughs> there's yeah. a spot in um, Malang um, that you can go to that there's a, a series of pelicans that always sit there, young ones, and there's another spot over at Meningi, so in the two lakes on either side. Um, and in Meningi, they've carefully made these little stands that the pelicans all land on at night time. So you'll get there and there'll be 100, 200 pelicans in front oh, of this wow. house every night. Amazing. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. I just wrote the movie Stormboy, famous line, Dad, why do we live here? Because it's the best place there is. There you go. It's an ad for the, the Curum. So how are things looking there? Oh, you talk about ecology, studying the life and things. What, what, it's, is it a healthy system, do you think? Or do we know? Or I don't think anywhere at the end of the River Murray at the moment could ever be healthy. Uh, we, we've all been listening to the political ups and downs and ins and outs and negotiations around it, but in the end we know that the water that comes down the Murray is less than it would have naturally been because we extract a lot. And so at the moment it's probably getting, and I don't need, know the exact numbers, but it's around 20% of the natural flow. And so that's obviously going to have an impact. Um, but it's also got other things around development and all the rest of it. So any area that's in an area of high productivity, and estuary is a very productive area, is, is going to not be 100% healthy. But that being said, things like environmental flows and managing them very carefully and fishways and 
understanding of things like saltware gestures have meant that we can do things. And the South Australian government and Commonwealth government's doing some amazing stuff with um, getting fish breeding and moving up and down the river, which has been really good. The dredges in the mouth have kept the mouth healthy. Sad that we have to have dredges, but there you are. Um, and so there's some really good stories in some areas. The problem is that those more remote areas, which we used to assume would be healthy because there was no one there, are being impacted on, but no one's there to see it. So those areas in the southern lagoon, um, there's an 80 kilometre stretch from Pantica Point down to beyond Salt Creek. Those areas um, are carrying uh, blue-green algae blooms at a rate of 1.2 million cells a millilitre. So if you think about how many cells that is 1.2 million is if if it was pages of a book it would be multiple cars long 10 12 13 cars long and we're finding that in a milliliter of water that's incredible it's Mm. it's mind-blowing and of course they suck nitrogen out of the air and when they die they release it into the water that's how blue green algae function um and they cause it all to go anaerobic and they they strip uh, phosphate and organic carbon out of the sediment and then they grow more of them and round and round and round it circles it goes and they and they host this golden diatome over the top and it turns into this lime green cordial colour. It's really quite, if you don't know what it is and you think it's healthy, it's really quite beautiful. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately it's anaerobic and it's got issues with hydrogen sulphide and it stinks um, and that's now blowing into the northern lagoon over January through to March each year. And we're getting um, knee-high racks of dead crabs um, and um, areas where there's hundreds and hundreds of little bloodworms dead on the surface and um, mud cockles dying in their beds. And um, that's impacting the southern portion of the northern lagoon now and it's creeping further up every year. Um, And um, we get... Just when the weather starts to change in autumn, we get something called sea sparkle occur. And it's a, it's a dinoflagellate, which doesn't mean much to most people, but it's a little single-celled algae that actually doesn't photosynthesise. It eats other algae, which you wouldn't expect an algae to do, but there you are. It's an opinionated little thing, and it doesn't like to stick with the normal routine. I know how it feels. And so... Carnivore algae. A carnivore <laughs> algae. And so what it does is it's eating up all of these blue-green algae and other little dinoflagellates, including um, one that causes red tides. Um, but when it's doing that, it glows in the dark. And so there's this area around Seven Mile, which once again is incredibly enchanting if you don't realise what's happening. Although it's, it's trying to do a good thing. It's not damaging the system in itself, but it is trying to clean up all this algae in autumn. Um, but it, you go out there and you splash in the water and you get this phosphorescent blue around your feet and, and you can paint your hands. And one of the fishermen rang me and got me out there one day and he said to me, Faith, I've got to show you something. He says, come to the boat ramp. And I rocked up to the boat ramp and there's this fisherman. His beard is coated with it. So every time the wind moves his beard, and it's always windy there, it glows in the dark and his nets are coated with it and his hands are coated with it and his boat is coated with it. Wow. Uh, it's like paint and the whole system glows in the dark. So I'm thinking that we need gondola rides down there, you know, with candlelit, you know, black, uh, a glass of bubbly. It's really quite romantic and beautiful, but uh, it's sad that we've got to the point that it's, that much usually would have some of this algae there but not for three or four months of the year and so yeah we've, we've basically got um something that would be considered an algal bloom along 80 percent of the coron throughout basically december through to march april every year now so is there any way of trying to reverse that there is there's it, one of the interesting things if you think about your lungs they clean the air and they clean your blood right and so you bring in dirty air it filters it and it puts oxygen into your blood and then the lungs the other part of it that we forget about is it discharges co2 and so when you asphyxiate what happens is you actually die from too much carbon dioxide rather than a lack of oxygen usually um and it's the same with the with the kurong it dies from those waste products that form and with your lungs the way that you keep your lungs healthy is you keep breathing the second you stop breathing you've got a problem it's with the kurong it needs to keep breathing 
and that breathing is water moving. It doesn't matter if it's salty. Well, it does to a degree, but it doesn't so much matter if it's salty or fresh or turbid or anything, but water must keep moving. Um, and at the moment, it's it's sort of stagnating, and, and, and it forms these stratified layers, one on top of each other, like a chocolate cake, you know? And so you've got salt water at the bottom, and then you've got a little bit fresher above it and, and, and fresh on the top, and the wind sometimes mixes it and it sometimes doesn't, and some of it's really, really toxic and some of it's really, really healthy. Um, but if the water keeps moving, you don't get those stratified layers formed and the whole system stays healthier. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a matter of making sure the system has the flow it requires to keep the um, keep those pollutants and things kept in the sediment where they're meant to be in an estuary. In an estuary, they actually accumulate more carbon than a rainforest. But there's a cost to that, which is it has to be kept there in the sediment always. If you let it out, things go really, really pear-shaped really, really quick. And so, yeah, this is always the thing, is when you look at an estuary and you see those algal blooms, you know the problem is a lack of flow in the end. Not too much nutrients, well, yes, too much nutrients, but that wasn't what caused the problem. What caused the problem was a lack of flow from somewhere. Uh, and in the in the Coorong, it's actually not as simple as most people think. It's not just the river coming down. Um, there's localised rainfall that causes uh, flows to occur into the Coorong. There is all of those flows that used to occur from the southeast up. So the southeast was 95, 96% um, marshes and swamps before we drain them. Um, it's now one of our most productive agricultural areas. But that's, that's extraordinary, though, isn't it? Just that point there. Yeah, the it's southeast huge. Was 96% swamps. Swamps. Yeah. Yeah. And so all of those swamps, there was like fingers of dunes going north. And all of those swamps used to be directed towards the Kuril and Lake Bonnie and Lake George and Lake Frome. And all of those lakes, those back barrier lagoons, as they're called, received water, fresh water from those systems. We couldn't have had the agriculture and the development in South Australia that we had without draining them. And it didn't help that the Victorians drained their water into our land either. So it's not just South Australia, you know, states, South Australia, Victoria, we have to have this competition. They also drained um, and they drained into South Australia in, in many cases. And so then we had to drain more, you know, and so we ended up with all of this water going out to sea. But we've not only just drained the water on the surface, but we've drained the water below a metre or two below. And so the rainfall that used to fall on a wet surface and immediately go north to the Coorong now falls on two or three metres of dry soil and is immediately soaked up. And then you add climate change to that and that area's been quite badly impacted by a lack of rainfall. Um, they've lost about 50 millimetres of rain a year. So where they used to have 450 millilitres, uh, millimetres of rain, they now have you know 400 on average. Um, and so they've got this continual decrease of rainfall as well. And so fixing that's incredibly hard, and it's quite likely that that was a source of a lot of water into the Coorong, as along along with the River Murray. Um, and so the the South East NRM Board and the South Australian Government has been trying to divert those drains back into the Coorong. They've done a really good job, but they're never going to get to where they were. And then, of course, you look at the River Murray, and we're extracting well over 80% of the of the water that lands into the River Murray for irrigation and other purposes. So that would have naturally flowed out to the Coorong at some point. 80%? More than 80%, wow. yeah. Of that gets used for anything from growing cotton and irrigation um, through to um, town drinking supplies. And, of course, there's a joke in the River Murray that it goes through a, an animal seven times before it gets to the Coorong. <laughs> some of those are humans and some of them are cows, but it really doesn't matter. The water goes round and round and round in circles. It goes up onto the land and it goes through an animal. It comes back out again into the river. It's not great when you think our Adelaide water comes from that. Mm. But so, so there's that there's that ongoing discussion about that lack of water from the Murray. So, so maybe we're getting twenty percent of that. I'm I'm not across the numbers entirely up there, but but if we're getting twenty percent of river flows that we naturally would have got, plus they're being impacted by climate change and, and drought. And we're getting maybe, with all of these rediversions, 10, 20, 30% of what naturally came from the southeast. We really don't know what came from the southeast. And that's, of course, why I'm taking that three year sabbatical to work out what did actually come up from the southeast. Um, and then, because we've got less coming from both those sources, 
the River Murray, the mouth of it is not being kept open because those water from those two sources used to blow the sand out of the mouth. And we have an island called Bird Island that's quite a large number of hectares with woodland on it that never existed in the 1940s. Wow. And, and, and you look at that and you think, <laughs> this used to be a completely different system. Pre-barrages, pre-irrigation extraction, pre-drainage, it was a completely different system. The Narendri will stand there and talk to me about the Southern Lagoon. Remember the pea soup location. Um, and one of the guys said to me, yeah, when I was a kid, and this guy's only in his 50s, he gave me, yeah, when I was a kid, I used to chuck seagrass at each other down there at Salt Creek. And I go, yeah. And he said, and we used to eat all the cockles, all the mud cockles that were there. They were quite big. Um, in fact, we preferred those to the Gulba cockles because they're a bit small. And so there's this ongoing discussion about how much it's changed in a really short amount of time and how much we've forgotten. Um, it turns out in South Australia, we were really bad record keepers. Incredibly bad. Um, actually, we're really good at taking the records. We we're really bad at keeping them. And so there's all of these records from explorers, from fishermen, from um, botanists, um, from um, people who were building things, people who were exploring and clearing land usually kept records along the way. But now um, we stand there and people go, no, 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 there was never cockles in the Southern Lagoon, you know? Or when Heidi Alloway was doing all this amazing oyster stuff along the coastline, um, she was told, no, no, we never had native oysters in South Australia. And, uh, and so was my mother when she was doing... Um, living beaches and, and living shorelines work in Port Adelaide Enfield. She was drawing these amazing pictures with, with native oysters in them. And she was told there was never native oysters in the Port River and it, and it turns out there was. Mm. And so we, we, we're good at forgetting and sometimes we can't restore things unless we know where we started. Mm. It was never really valued by the majority of people. It still isn't in the environment, you know. We've often talked about, like, in the 70s, people started protesting and saying, look, you know, we're polluting this and we're doing that. And those people weren't taken too seriously even then. And mostly they were hippies and they had dreadlocks and they did a lot of strange drugs. There wasn't but the science to back it yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, but then they went to uni and they came back with degrees and they said, well, hey, hang on a second, here's some proof. And, and now it's a subject you can go and study, you know. So yeah. it's, um, it's considered a lot more important. Um, but there, there's always been conservationists but I think now it's a, uh, there's a huge awareness for it. Yeah. But still, we, we're very human-focused, so you've got your hands full, you know, mm -hmm. trying to convince people how to protect the biodiversity. Well, most people are w wanting to protect their income, their livelihood, their food source, to feed their family of 25 kids. Um, I exaggerated there. We do, we do go on about population <laughs> I, I sense here. a population. <laughs> Whoa. I'll backtrack. Um. <laughs> it's actually really interesting talking to some of the Narendra elders about population control and how many children they're allowed to have and all the rest of it. We've, we found a, a lot of the traditional owner groups I work with, are, because I keep coexisting in my estuaries. It turns out estuaries are hotspots for civilization back millennia. And so it's no surprise that our traditional owners in Australia also congregated around estuaries um, but when you talk to them most traditional owner groups will tell you about different methods of birth control different methods of population control how many children they were allowed to have and you think these were people who we, we have a thing in in world development now we talk about you educate the women you get better birth control you get populations decrease well it turns out our traditional owners in Australia already had that happening they knew. You know, there was no university degrees, there was no reading of, of, of written language, and yet they already knew this, and they were already practising this, this this population control. And I think that's that's really important that we do consider, consider that. Um, we also need to consider how we, and this is probably going slightly a detour from what you usually discuss, Adrian, we, we need to discuss how we manage our value of things. So... In the 70s and 80s, we shifted from a system where we valued what people were doing towards more of a value of money. And we went from to a more uh, a capitalist society. Uh, and what we're finding is we're getting these larger and larger corporations with more and more money and people with more and more money as individuals who have no idea how it was earned. Um, 
I find I end up working an awful lot with, I'm going to call them artisan fishermen, because they're really not big businesses. They, uh, uh, there is a, a gentleman down the Coorong who will tickle carp specially for, for different chefs, you know. Um, you'll order a kilo or two of this fish and he'll go get it for you. You know, it, it's really, really artisan. There is no other word for it. It, just, it, it tickles the carp. He tickles the carp. <laughs> he literally he reduces... leave it, could you? No. no, he couldn't. I knew you were going to go there. He literally um, will, if you want a, a carp that's not stressed, will jump out into the water, wrap his arms around it, huge carp, tickle it so it relaxes, and then lift it up out of the water and put it into an ice bath. Um, so that it never releases the stress hormones that give carpets muddy flavour. And so, but there's also, um, uh, often people will say to me, irrigators are the baddies. Not always, you know. There is a series of small irrigators around the lower lakes who advocate very, very hard for environmental goodness. Sometimes that's slightly misdirected, but they generally advocate for the health of the system because they recognise that they're, They've lived there, some of them, for four and five generations. Their irrigation of their, of their crops, of their dairies, of their other things are their way of making an income so they can live where their grandfather and their great-grandfather and their great-great-grandfather lived before them. Um, there is um, irrigators upstream that say to me, we want to see more done for the environment, but we don't know who to trust. You know, we, we're quite happy to see environmental flows going through the Murray-Darling Basin. We hear a lot of irrigators say that they're not happy, but they're mainly the big corporates when you actually start talking to them. The smaller farmers, apart from the fact they don't know why the price has gone so high and they can't pay for their school fees or, or their food, the smaller farmers will say, yeah, we're actually quite happy to see 10 20% of our allocation go to environmental purposes, but we just need to know it's of benefit. Um... And so that's, that's an interesting discussion around making sure we monitor things properly and report things properly and engage. Um, but there's uh, the Nature Conservancy and some of the other NGOs are working with irrigators upstream to turn some of their areas into wetlands and on private land. Areas that was irrigators are now being turned into environmentally um, sustainable wetlands for, for breeding of fish and, and native plants. And you wouldn't expect that. There's no uh, economic benefit to them in a classic capitalist society there is no reason for these people to do this but yeah. but they are and i think we have to recognize that um and we also have to recognize that if we can encourage smaller businesses to engage with the water trading system um, smaller businesses to do most of the business in our catchments and in our communities we'll get more of that not not less mm. It's interesting when you go back to the, the locals that you were talking about with their population growth. Yeah. They, they do that because they're in small pockets and they know what they can go out and hunt or grow or, or whatever and they know that they can't grow so big. I think the planet, population-wise, the planet's got too big for anyone to actually know how much we should be growing, how much we should be selling and, and stuff like that. Some of the tribes probably in... Papua New Guinea or, or South America and things, you know, you never see these tribes that have been around for, oh, God knows how long. You never see them exploding population-wise, do you? They, they seem to self-control. It's, mm. yeah. yeah. I think like us, we've, we've lost the ability to, to control that. Because yeah. no one really gets their head around how big our tribe is now, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. I live in a, in a small town. It's 250 people. Mm. And one of the things I love about it is, you know, the local golf club, uh, the, the members are getting older and so they would like some automatic irrigation so that they don't have to cut sprinklers around the place. So they come to me and they go, Faith, we need to write a grant application. I go, yep. And they say, we're not real good at it. And I go, yep. And they go, can you do it for me? And I go, uh, and I go, yep. <laughs> and they go, well, good. And so I write them a funding application. And then a week or a month or three months later, I'll look out into my driveway and there's a box of wood for my fire sitting there from the farmer who was taking a tree down in his woodlot and he figured that I needed some wood so he dropped it off. 
Um, and there's a local swimming hole that we got some money in to to dredge because it's got some issues with um, hydrogen sulphide generation and it's right in the middle of town. And so we had to remove the dirty sediment. Um, and so I found him some money through a grant. And I looked at the lake and I realised it was if I was going to do the proper, you know, commercial value, it would be three or four hundred thousand dollars worth of work. And I got him fifty thousand. So I said, "Oh, Lee, this is what I've got you." Oh, that's plenty. He goes. And next thing I see is all of the surrounding people are driving his trucks and driving his tractors and driving his excavators. And the guy with the quarry down the road donated rocks for the edges to make retaining walls. And I now have this one hectare lake that has retaining wall around the edge of it and it's got landscaping and plants and and it's dredged and it's got no stinky sediment anymore so all the children have somewhere to swim and we can grow. We've got little hardy heads in it, little native fish and we're going to put some silver perch in it now. Um, so we're going to have all these native fish in this in this little groundwater-fed lake. And there was no way I could have done that under a standard uh, very capitalist transaction. The only way I could have done that was this way. Um, of, of bartering and talking and we all recognise what each other does and uh, people say to me you're not a normal person to live in a local community and usually one of the local communities says no that's what makes her valuable you know and, and, and they recognise that diversity we have we have Sikhs we have Hindu mm. we have um, Greeks we have Italians we have South Africans we have English folk we have the traditional uh, uh, you know guy who settled the place four generations ago and we're all living in a little community but because everyone has something different to offer we actually uh, work really really well and I also think we have a far less impact on the planet on which I, we sit. I was just going to say that small communities like that, if there was the same amount of people on this planet now, but in small communities of 250 people, yeah. I think the environment would be way better mm. because you'd say like, oh, we've just ordered in 500 lettuces. Yeah. So come and get your lettuces each and, and stuff like that. Like the, the, It would be so much easier to, to communicate and, and yeah, I think that'd be so much better for the environment. Mm. I'm moving somewhere where there's 250. Well, they people. didn't have any English people, so you could. <laughs> I could uh, there was one there's or two. There. Was it? Okay. I think I think yeah. the latest teacher is. I'm not sure. My children uh, are not in that school, but um, but yes, I suspect that yes, there might be one or two English in there. It, right. is, a, it is a diverse. We do let a couple of them in, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> a so I wouldn't be able to come. I'd have to find somewhere else. Oh no! You've got no, your quota. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure there's a spare house. <laughs> we'll have to work out what skills you offer. I'm not. Sure, yeah. you know, breeding rodents going to help, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it might. <laughs> Love it. Do you know Chris Coomatry? Yes, I know Chris. He's been on the show. He's a yeah, great he, guy. He's amazing. He's really incredible to listen to. Yeah, but he wasn't the gentleman you talked about that had stories of throwing seagrass. No, no, no that's another one again. There's the the Narendra uh, are incredible with their with the extent of knowledge that they have, um, and I suspect in. Look, I, as I said, I've, I've worked in estuaries a, a long time and um, I'm a fourth-generation ecologist, which takes a bit. Fourth generation? Fourth, I wonder about your mum. Fourth generation, yeah. Oh, wow. um, and so when you actually sit down and look at that, um, uh, I originally would go into a system and go, oh, I know what I'm doing, you know. I'm good. I know how an estuary works. Um, and the number of times I've sat there... And been told, no, actually, you're wrong by a traditional owner in the system. Uh, and, the, and the native oysters up at Port Germain were one of those where this guy said to me, we used to, uh, we used to get oysters out there at the mouth of that, of that estuary. And I said to him, oh, there was no native oysters in South Australia. I've been told it plenty of times, you know. And he said to me, no, no, that's what they were. And I thought, oh, I won't question him any further, you know. <laughs> uh, lovely man. And... Um, he may very well be listening. Um, and um, I actually took that story of his and I took it to the museum and they said, nah, nah, no native oysters there. And I went back to him and I said, oh, I'm sorry, Uncle. You're sure you weren't talking about pinna? Oh, no, he says, I was definitely talking about flat oysters. He goes, and he started showing me the middens records. Um, and, of course, it was not long after that that the research came out and said he was absolutely right. And this has happened to me time and time and time again. And so I've actually got to this point when a traditional owner tells me something, unless I have really, really good European proof that it wasn't the case, 
I won't even debate it anymore, you know. And and that's been really interesting at the Coorong because um, you have all heard about the seal issue that's down there. There's been a lot in the media about the long-nosed fur seals that are coming into the Coorong. And um, my guide name, I was a guide leader, my guide name was Seal. Okay. And so I'm down there and I'm running a group called Lakes Hub and I'm, do, I'm sharing estuarine information and how the system works. And these fishermen who I thought were amazing and great environmental advocates and really cared about the system. In America, they call them um, watermen rather than fishermen because they're more about the water than the... Anyway. Um, but, you know, and they're starting to tell me these seals don't belong here and they should be culled. And that really, really didn't sit well with me and it hasn't sat well with many ecologists because that's not what we're brought up with. You know, a seal, its face and its eyes are proportioned to be attractive to a human. Its eyes are the right size as a human baby. Its forehead and shape is meant to look attractive, you know, to obviously their parents, but by by lack or by good judgment or something, it's also really attractive to a human. Um and so this was really hard for me. And then I started talking to the fishermen and it started making sense. But what really struck home is when the Naranji came out with a statement saying that these animals don't belong there. And it's really very, very clear. It's a statement. It's on their website. I'm yet to have a Naranji tell me directly that this is not the case. It's, um, and that's really unusual to have a whole community of people saying, no, they don't belong here. Um, and there are Naranji elders going out and killing them now. Um, and and there's a whole debate between the department and the Naranji elders around how to manage that. Um, but what do you do in that situation? And all I can say is I am yet to come across a Naranji or a, a traditional owner group who is so determined about something for them not to be right. And so... I, at this point, I have to accept that they're right, that there were no long-nosed fur seals in the Coorong before European settlement. Um, which then, of course, <laughs> leads me to the unpalatable discussion to myself of why they're coming in. And we've talked about flows and we've talked about um, other things. But when I started going through the sealers' records, it turned out the seals weren't in the Coorong, but they're in the discharge out to sea where the turbid water of the estuary and the river would interchange with the ocean water. It happens inside the Coorong now, but it used to happen outside the Coorong. And the seals used to feed there. But then we start talking about the loss of these oyster reefs and the fact that there was 1,500 kilometres, a third of South Australia's coastline, that was covered with oyster reefs. Now, seals don't eat oysters, and, and, and I'd never suggest that, but oysters have algae growing on them, and algae attracts fish. And if you're a fisherman... You don't go out into the middle of the desert and go fishing. You find a reef or a sunk ship or a sunk car body um, and you fish on that because that's where the fish are. And so I suspect we've really messed with the marine ecology and because it's underwater, we can't see it. Um, but we've messed with this system so much that these species have rebounded. Well, the long-nosed fur seals has, has the, the sea lion hasn't. It, I believe its numbers are still going down. And the Australian fur seal, I think, is also going down. I haven't seen the numbers lately. There are others way better at it than I. Um, but this particular species is still going up in population. And so it's got to a point where its population one must only assume it's got too much for where it lives because it's going into what one of the Saudi researchers termed the other day a suboptimal habitat. And it's gone into an area where the traditional owners are saying really clearly they didn't exist. And so I think it's a really... I think when we get caught up in this conversation about greenies versus fishermen, cull versus don't cull, we forget the real message here, which is that we've messed with the system so badly that this species is going to area it wouldn't naturally go. And by making it this binary argument, we've missed out on the fact our marine zone is, is a desert underneath where it used to be a wonderland. And we really, really need to restore that if we want to get the system back. And 
in the short term because the Coorong is so badly damaged and there is so many species that are critically endangered that live in it, including fish species and bird species, which are, which are currently unavoidably being impacted by a large predator being in the system. It may, it may require us to either find a way to encourage them not to be in the Coorong via acoustic devices or something similar, or we may need to discuss that awful C word, that four-letter word of cull. Mm. Um, but for, to me, when we've got to that point, we've failed. We've failed the system that gives us the air we breathe and we've failed the system that gives us our food. And really, seriously, we deserve kicking out because we've done such a bad job of managing the system that we depend on. Um, and so I, I think it's really important that the, the conversation around the long-nosed field seals shifts from being bloody fishermen or bloody greenies or bloody, or bloody seals <laughs> or, or bloody seals <laughs> to a conversation about how did we get here and I think that's um, a hard conversation to have and then look to see if we can reverse it and undo all those things and, and, and most people will say to you that's impossible but it's not impossible nothing in this earth is impossible it's just really hard mm. and I think we've come to a point we have to have those really hard conversations and do those really, really hard things. Um, we were talking about the River Murray and how to restore it. Um, and there's a guy called Martin Mellon Cooper who designed all the fishways along the River Murray. You know, as far as fish ecologists or, or fish uh, biologists generally, he is a, an amazing man. And he sat down with all of the historic records of the River Murray and he's worked out, you know, that characteristic picture of that man standing across the River Murray and there's this little trickle running between his feet? Yeah. You know the yeah, one? Yeah, I've seen it. It turns out it was just downstream of one of the early irrigation pumps. And everyone thought it was before irrigation, but irrigation started way earlier than we thought. And now that Martin's gone through all the records, his papers are showing that the River Murray always flowed, especially here in South Australia, it always flowed. Uh, and that's partially due to the fact it goes through several climate zones, but it's also due to the fact it gets groundwater base flows and things as well. Um, but he's also taken that further to discuss how our native fish rely on water to flow to be able to breed. And he's come up with this idea that we need to remove every second weir along the River Murray, which is a lot. And it's a bit scary um, because we put them in for paddle steamers to navigate up and down the river. And, and paddle steamers need a lot of clearance especially when you've got two big ones passing each other. And so um, we believe that we put them in for a reason, so they must stay there, right? The truth is we probably don't need water that deep or that wide anymore for navigation. We don't use it for that purpose anymore. And so he's quite clearly saying if we remove every second one, we'll have areas where the water runs all the time. And then we'll have native fish breed and we'll reduce the area that the carp breed in. And we might actually get a small degree of control, a step towards controlling the introduced species that like that still stagnant water. Um, but we'll also get riparian vegetation form and we'll get more flooding and, 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 and uh, swelling of the water body and shrinking of the water body. So we'll have red gums and things growing along the edge. So we could actually restore that system. And, and when I talk to people and say, look, we should really do this, they say, that's impossible. But last week, France blew up their biggest dam for native fish, you know? And you sit there and you go, no, it is possible. There are other countries doing this around the world. We're just a bit slow. And I think, <laughs> sure. I think we can do this. Mm. Wow, that's fascinating. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So the, so the river naturally sort of gets wider and, and narrower in places to, to allow for that flow. Yes. It would automatically allow for that flow. It would, yeah. Whereas what we did is to get the boats up the river, we looked at the original banks, the, the flood banks, and went, we can get a really big paddle steamer up there if we flood this river until it's that big. It's the size of those big flood banks at the edge, um, which we did, of course, by putting these weirs and buns in. But it's like, if you think about those big flat fire hoses that you get, you need an awful lot of water 
to get one of those first inflated and then with a big jet to put the, the fire out, right? But if you have one of those pressure cleaners at home, yeah, you can get the same it. pressure and the same yeah. projection of flow just using a far smaller hose. And so that's the theory with the river. We can actually get the same flow as in speed velocity um, if we get a smaller cross-section of water. It's going to be a challenging conversation to have, but mm. I think we can. So yeah. it won't ever be the big, massive, steady flow that used to come down, but it won't... You'll almost close it in at points to push it through. Mm. Yeah, you won't... You won't get the big floods. I mean, we're not getting them now, is the truth of the matter. Um, because when they do come down, they flood people's houses. People have built houses and caravan parks and all sorts of other infrastructure on the floodplain. And so we're not getting the flows through that we would anyway. We, we keep them in big dams upstream because um, if we let them go, we damage infrastructure. So it's that discussion about human values versus environmental values um and um, i spent 10 years on the fitzroy river delta in queensland um our house was on stilts very tall stilts and every now and then there was crocodiles underneath you know this was just the way life was and sometimes we went to the shop in a boat and we just got used to that and that's how we lived, because that river is nowhere near as regulated as the River Murray. But because we got used to this regulated system, um, people tend to expect that. Good old Queenslander houses. That's right. <laughs> Here at the Sturt Gorge, you've got a big dam, and it's always just letting a little bit of water seep out through the Sturt Gorge Conservation Park. And it's fantastic, and there's spots you can go to that I've never seen another person there. They're not easy to access, and... and in the middle of summer, where everything else is dry, you've got water holes you can swim in, and it's great. Um, it's native bush, and it's water skinks, and rebelly black snakes, and Cunningham skinks, and the rocks, and it's a great spot. And then it gets down to suburbia, where it used to be beautiful big floodplains, and mm. you've still got the river red gums dotted around the suburbia, and it just becomes a concrete drain that goes out to the pat. Uh, big contrast. Yeah. Mm. It's beautiful down Sturt Gorge. Sturt Gorge is great. Back on too, lovely. It's yeah. it's incredible, isn't it? I, I always love making that because I ended up um, at one point I worked for an engineering firm, and I got the job because I didn't have any other jobs of project managing, checking the concrete of that drain to make sure it was all okay. And so I had this group of young engineers because I'm not one. And I was filling in all of the paperwork to make sure they did the right thing, you know. And they walked backwards and forwards, checking for cracks and, and things along the way. But what got me is in areas where there was a constant trickle of water going through that drain and there was just a few little cracks, it didn't take a lot before the reeds and the club rushes and all these other things started coming back. And if you got down with a microscope and a hand lens and your camera... It almost looked like natural world that was up further, just in microscopic form. And, and it, wouldn't it be lovely if we just let those cracks get a bit bigger? Yeah, yeah. let it all grow over and start again. Yeah, mm. Or take the concrete away and let it come back. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going um, to touch on a horrible subject for you. Mm -hmm. I love fishing. Yeah. And I love the fact that the carp are in the Murray and I can go and fish and catch them easily and have a great time. Am I a bad person? No, because we all... We'll end it, end it there. <laughs> but, but I'm going to do the typical scientific thing here, you know, because there is never a yes or no in science. There's always just shades of grey. And I'm going to tell you, but wouldn't you far prefer to get native fish? I'd love to catch a Murray cod. You'd love to catch a Murray cod. And put it straight back, obviously, because that would just be amazing, though. Yeah. No, I, I do. I, I joke. Obviously, I do love going and catching some carp and that. But, yeah, it would be better. It would be, yeah. yeah. I would love to see all the carp gone. Um, and I've got a bit of media press of late talking about the carp virus. In fact, way too much media press of late talking about the carp virus. Um, because I... Um, the interesting thing is there's never a silver bullet in this world. 
This is carp herpes. The carp herpes, yes. And carp cold sores. Carp cold sores, yes. <laughs> really bad cold sores all over their body. It's a disgusting thing to watch. Um, but, yeah, so that's that's what we're talking about. And, and often biocontrols are a wonderful thing in Australia. We've, we've had some really great success with biocontrols. We've also had some abysmal failures. Um, I'm not going to say they equal each other, but, you know... Cane toads. I mean, seriously. <laughs> um, so if, if, we, if we're thinking about that, we realise that there's a lot of damage we can do with the wrong biocontrol. And um, it's a bit like we were discussing the, the culling of, of seals. Um, it's really, really easy to go, let's just go kill a lot of them. You know, let's, we'll fix whatever problems we're having just by killing things. The truth is we never, ever have something like carp in a system if we haven't made the environment right for them. We tried because we just love making everything look like Europe. Which that brings it down to the slow running water. And that, yeah, yeah, that does. So, yeah, we, we tried for a long time to release carp into the River Murray um, and get them to establish in the River Murray because we wanted the River Murray to look like areas of Europe. Um, and we failed. We, 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 there's records of carp in the, in the lower lakes in the 1920s. They didn't establish. And the reason they didn't establish is because the environment wasn't right. So, so who released carp originally? Um, there was an assim- I've forgotten the name of the society, but there was a society that was an, a group of societies that were going around Australia, and they released deer, and foxes, and hares. Were they called the acclimatizers. That's it. Thank you. The yeah. Acclimatizers. And so they, they they were going around the the, the acclimatization societies were going around trying to make. Uh, Australia look, feel, taste, smell like Europe. Only f- problem is they forgot to introduce water. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, lo- they missed the obvious. But oh, you're tough on them, aren't you? Oh, tough, aren't I? <laughs> and so, and so um, I suspect that the, the carp herpes virus um, is once again our silver bullet, our way of going, we're just going to fix this. And, and we haven't sat down and thought about two parts of that. One is, why are the carp doing so well? And and the best reason I can find from an ecological perspective, because I see everything through the ecological lens, of course, um, the best I can see from an ecological perspective is we've made the habitat right for them. Carp breed in slow, still, stagnant water. They live in monks' ponds, in monasteries. You know, they like cold water where it freezes over the top. They, they'll tolerate hot water where there's no dissolved oxygen at all because they can come up to the surface and gulp air, which our native fish can't do. Um, so they're perfectly evolved for a still stagnant River Murray. And in fact, when you look at the numbers of carp and when they took off, they took off after we stopped regulating the River Murray. Once we decided we couldn't regulate it anymore, carp decided they loved it. Um, in contrast to our native fish, which love cool, flowing waters. They hate it when it stagnates. They love it when it's sunlit. They love it when there's dapples of shade. They love it when there's lots of reeds and rushes alongside. Um, that's where our native fish live. The River Murray doesn't look like that now. It did look like that in the past. Um, and so this idea that we could just suddenly get rid of the carp and that native fish would populate all of the voids left um, is forgetting the fundamentals of the habitats that they like, um, which means that if we release the virus, there's, there's likely going to be a couple of things. Depending on the biomass of carp, we'll end up with lots of anaerobia and rotting fish because we're never going to be able to remove them. Um, or it's not going to be effective at all, and then we're not going to be able to apply all sorts of other methods, such as the, um, I'm going to call it sunless carp now. It was called daughterless carp, but we messed with the genetics, and it turns out that we can only produce sunless carp um and things like commercial harvest we won't be able to do if we've got this virus in the system and so if we release the virus a lot of our other options are gone and and so um the likelihood is we'll release the virus um a lot of the carp will survive through the anaerobia who, who are immune to the virus um and they will um repopulate those areas very very quickly and so I suspect that the carp virus may very well be the best way to get more carp in the system that we know of. And it will take out whatever native fish might be there. Highly likely, yes. So, so it's not the carp that are killing the native fish, it's... The carp are not killing the native fish. 
Um, carp are not really, they don't eat other fish per se. Um, however, they do grub around in the mud and they do resuspend sediment. Um, now, if that sediment is sodic due to salt and, 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 and livestock in the water, um, that resuspension will stay suspended for a lot longer um, than it would in an area that that hasn't occurred. Um, so the carp are not 100% guilty there. They're only partially guilty. Um, and they often will eat a lot of the reeds and rushes and submerged macrophytes that the native fish like, and so they contribute in that way to a degree once they're over a certain concentration of fish. Um, and they also uh, will, in many cases, accidentally eat the eggs and, and baby fish of, of the native fish that just happen to be in the way. Um, and so there's an interesting discussion around how much that impact is. There's obviously an impact. Mm. Um, but if you think about a native fish such as a brim, black lit brim, they'll produce millions of eggs. Um, and if we can just change the balance just a little bit, so 1% or 2% more of those millions of eggs survive, um, we'll get a lot more of those native fish. So it's us that are changing the conditions that suits the carp, but then yeah. the carp take over and they change the environment to suit themselves, and not intentionally, but yeah. just through their actions. That's, That's right. That's interesting. Um, I mean, I think it's lovely that we have those beautiful stagnant slow areas we can appreciate and they look a bit Europey. I mean, I've got a, a golden ash out here and I've got some lawn yeah. and I've got three acres of bush. I'm not anti, you know, pretty stuff. Um, I think bush is pretty too, but I mean, it's lovely to sit under an ash tree in the summertime. Sometimes it's not a great idea to sit under a gum tree. Um, so a little bit less of that and a little bit more flowing, we can possibly see the native fish come back of their own volition. Yes, absolutely. And, and we'll always have some carp. In the end, much though I'd love to turn around and say they'll all be gone, just as you have your ash tree and your pond, we will end up with some ponds and some willows because we're never going to get rid of those either, and some carp. And so, no so matter the carp would go to those ponds. Yes, so, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And so, what we'll end up with is just shifting the balance. And it's like this seesaw. All we need to do is push it a little bit further over so the balance is in favour of the natives rather than the introduced ones and we'll have a system that that suits our landscape better do you think if we removed every second weir it would blow out all that the blue what? green algae <laughs> the, the In the lagoon. all those all those things that are drawing all the oxygen out of the look i the only thing that's going to fix it down there is flow and not just speed flow but we need volume flow down that end um and there's a huge push in New South Wales at the moment to remove the barrages at the lower lakes and get let the area be flooded by the sea. Unfortunately, the lack of flow, volume flow, from these other sources has meant the mouse closed up to really, really tiny and it's barely able to flood a tiny portion of the area, as testified to by all the blooms. Um, and so no matter what we do fixing those areas upstream by reducing the amount of area... Um, and, and making the velocity higher, we're still going to need that flow down here. And every time someone says to me, Would, we want to get rid of the barrages because you've got this freshwater lake and it's just for yachting and blah, 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 blah. You know, I say to them, that's fine. I'd love to see the barrages gone. Absolutely. I'd be, I'd be the first one there with the TNT. As long as we recognise that river iron systems get restored from the head down. And so once the Hume's gone and the Dartmouth's gone and all the rest of them are gone... And all of those other weirs are gone. Okay. I'll be there with the TNT at the barrages, but not before. How big was the mouth before the barrages was put in? Do we know that? Or? It's really, really hard to know because we started aerial photographs after we um, we started aerial photographs after we um, put the barrages in. Um, but what we do know is it's a lot more mobile, um, and so it would move up and down the coast a lot more. Um, and way back in one of the Narendra stories I was told ages ago, um, at one point in history there may have been two mouths. There may have been one in the southern lagoon. Um, but I haven't, I haven't been privy to the details of that. Um, so it's, it just I, I look at those sort of discussions and realise the system before we messed with it uh, was completely different from what we see today. Did you talk about like letting the seawater come back in? 
Is that a thing that used to happen a lot of? And how far did it come in and what would be the implications of that or is that a whole other podcast? <laughs> That's a whole heap of politics. Um, the oh. interesting thing is fresh water and salt water sit on, uh, in layers above each other. And so what one person says was um, fresh water, if you look underneath, another person would have said was marine. And so often in these estuaries we have this discussion um, about the same point in the lake at the same point in time and different people will say different things and none of them are lying and none of them are wrong. It's just that each only has a part of the puzzle. And so we're seeing that at the moment with discussions around diatom cores and discussion around fish and discussion around other things is each person has got a portion of that puzzle. Um, and at the moment in the media, they're pointing their fingers at each other and going, you're wrong. Um, but the truth is, I think what we need to do and we really must do as South Australians is get each one of those little pieces of the puzzle and put it together in a temporal and a spatial scale um, so that we can actually go at this point of time, at this point on the lakes or on the Coorong, there was this fish, there was this algae, there was this stuff growing along the edge. Um, and we know in summer it was like this and in winter it was like this. So we can actually start to try and work out those complexities. Um, so that was a long answer for there's proof uh, that seawater used to at times come into Lake Albert and to Lake Alexandrina, but usually underneath a thicker layer of fresh water, um, which would the salt water would push the fresh water up and down like this, um, which people listening can't see. Um, she went like this. <laughs> um, yes, I'm good at that. Um, and so what, what used to happen is, of course, we used to get tidal movement up as far as Wellington and up as far as Murray Bridge. But it was tidal movement of fresh water at that time. So the fresh water would be pushed up and down by the sea moving outside. And oh, so, yeah. so you didn't have dolphins around Murray Bridge? Well, dolphins actually will swim in fresh water, but that's a whole new podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's an interesting discussion around the lakes and the, and the Coorong and what it might have been like at one point in time. Um it's really, really easy if you study forests because I can quite happily say to you there is a climax community. A rainforest looks like X, you know. A healthy one looks like Y, you know, and we can line them up. But what we've found with estuaries is there's no such thing as a climax community. They're constantly under flux and that's what makes them healthy. If we try and make them one thing, and, and we have with the lower lakes, we've tried to make them one thing, um, and they stagnate and then they become ill. And so we actually need, as humans, to step back, remove all of our preconceived ideas and actually let these systems be... Dynamic? Dynamic, mm. yeah. I thought you were going to say um, if you're <clears throat> studying forests, it's easier because people can see it and walk around in it and kind of like you touched on before with all this stuff you're talking about, it's happening under the water. Yeah, absolutely. well, that, that, that's the other part of it, isn't it? And, and that's the interesting thing when we're talking about those algal blooms. They're ta we're talking about things that are 20 microns across. And one of the species is Alexandrina minutum. It comes from Alexandrina in e Egypt, and it's minute. It's really, really literal name. So that's an introduced species. Then? It is the one okay. of the red tides, tides yeah. Um, and and with the well, with the blue green algae that I'm looking at, I have no idea which species it is because I don't think it's been named. Well, I definitely can't see anything identifying on it because it's so tiny. You know, it's big enough for me to see it's a blue green algae underneath the microscope. But beyond that, we're in no man's land. So they're all different. I mean, I just always learned about cyanobacteria. That's yeah. just a common group of these called things. Alexandrina. Did you say? Uh, one of them is is a dinoflagellate and it's in caused. Lake... No, that one's in the Coorong. Uh, oh. It's Alexandrina minutum. Yeah, it's it's amazing, <laughs> it, isn't it? Interesting, uh, Lake Alexandrina, and then next to it in the Coorong, something called Alexandrinum. Yeah, isn't it incredible how our Egyptian names and and ideas have gone through our society so much that people were named it, places were named it, all around the world. 
Um, but yes, so... Um, Without telephones. Without telephones, yes. No, we all got an idea in our head. If, if anything more is called Angus down our way, I'm going to scream. Everything is Angus. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... But what's been happening with the Koorong is people look at it and they see that the water is there. Um, and sometimes they go as far as the seagrass is not there. And so we've had all those rupia replanting things. But no one's ever actually... Well, the few people have. Rob Fitzpatrick has looked at the sediment and Luke uh, Mosley both have looked at the sediment and said there's something really wrong there. Um, but the things that we're seeing around the Alexandrina Minutum, the things we're seeing about the um, Noctiluca scintillans, which is the sea sparkle, once again it translates to that, so let's just stick with sea sparkle. <laughs> um, and uh, what we're seeing with the golden diatoms and things is there things that haven't come up in, in a lot of the species list because they're both so remote, so people aren't there looking at them, and because they are so small that we write these species lists and they stop just short of what's driving the system. Um, and, and that's what we find, is, is if people would get in the water and put their heads in with a snorkel, they'd see more. If they just get out and enjoy these wilderness areas gently... No four-wheel drives, no going up embankments the wrong way, no getting bogged, but just getting out there um, and sitting and looking, you find so much more. I um, I took uh, one of the guys who works with me down to Jack's Point. We'd just done some field work. I, you know, as all field work, I took a bottle of wine for afterwards, as you do, don't we all? Mm-hmm. Um, you guys are going to like my field work now, aren't you? It's been a long day. <laughs> We're in. Uh, and we went down to Jack's Point to the observatory and we're sitting there and it, it overlooks the pelican breeding colonies. Um, and pelicans had moved on by that stage. It wasn't their time to be there. Um, but usually the area is surrounded by shorebirds. And usually the noise of the ducks and the shorebirds on the water, and it definitely was this case when I first came to South Australia 25 years ago, um, that the ducks and the water birds and the shorebirds made so much noise that you couldn't hear the bush birds behind you. But I sat there for half an hour. I saw one band of still, two teals, and a duck in half an hour. The bush birds were still there, but out there in the water there was nothing. Um, and that was really quite shocking because I, I took a, a lovely older lady whose husband uh, was a major advocate for the, for the guru. He was a fisherman. Um, and I took her down to that place only probably a year before then, and she told me about standing there with the Premier back in the 70s and not being able to see the water for the ducks and the geese and, mm. and the water birds. And so we've had a major decay in, in shorebirds. And so I think there is an opportunity for people to get out and actually have a look and think about those things and, and have a look, and, and I think that we need to do that. Birdwashing's fun. I mean, and like you say, over a period of time you do notice changes, mm. but birdwatching is fun. Doesn't sound super sexy, but when you get into it, you've got your bird. But it is something it's that's been fun. around for so many years that mm. you do get a lot of information and a lot of history from things like bird watching, I think, didn't you? That it's been around for so long. Because I think originally, wasn't it women that did bird watching? I don't know. hundred years know. ago, I think John Grisham taught us that. Did he? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. Often, yeah. often uh, it was women who did uh, both botany and bird watching. Um, of course, their names didn't go on things, but. Um, but you know, I'm. Of course not. You don't need to be very good at these things. I'm discovering. You know, I'm terrible with fish; they swim way too fast. You know, I'm, I'm good at algae and plants, and sediments and water quality. And once you get to these things that move around in it, like fish, I'm very lucky if I can identify them. I know how they work. I know how the ecology works. I know how they function. But when it comes to identifying them. I'm always turning around to the fishermen and the guys who work with me and saying, oh, what was that thing? You know, and um, and it's the same with birds. You know, I can look at birds and I can go, that's a shorebird, that's a duck, that's a such and such. But in majority, the shorebirds, which are critical to what I'm doing, I classify them as LBBs, little brown birds. I still get enough out of looking at them and and watching them without being able to give them their Latin names. Um, there's amazing people like David Payton who will tell you exactly what they all are and that's why we have people like David to do that. But um, for the ordinary person, they shouldn't be daunted by the fact they can't. Um, They should actually just get out there and enjoy them. 
look at the way they function, look at the way they interact with each other in the landscape, and then things like bird identification and things will come naturally later. You're a very much a big picture person, and I love the way you not only have this wealth of knowledge about this subject, but also I really appreciate how well you explain it. Yeah, it's been, mate, it's been so interesting, this podcast, yeah. for me. I've learned so much. I, I enjoy it. I um, It's interesting, isn't it? We all come at things from a different place. Um, I come off cattle country. You know, my parents were moving around playing with salt marshes and salt fields and and we lived on huge river deltas. So I did school of the air and, and distance education, my brother and I. And I came to South Australia and they taught maths differently and I'd always been taught by my, my mother. I didn't realise I was dyslexic. And I didn't realise they did maths differently in Queensland to here. Um... And I actually managed to get so cross with my teachers, I managed to get myself expelled from distance ed. <laughs> um, and I managed expelled to... from distance. Yes. And I managed <laughs> wow. to fail mathematics, um, which my father's a mathematician and, and I've got a postgraduate in spatial statistics now. But um, it's, it's something that really rams at home is we each have our strengths. Mine wasn't long division. And it definitely wasn't negotiation with people in authority. Um, and, and that's okay. And it's okay. And, and, and I think what, what really comes home really, really quickly is some of us can do the hand-waving thing that people can't see over podcast and do it really well. Um, but it's the people who do the details too that are incredibly important and sometimes we miss them because they can't. Uh, explain it to people as well and I'm, I'm incredibly privileged I've got this group of people who work with me who are incredibly details orientated and really 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 care about those details that I don't and remind me when I'm so busy looking at the big picture that I've lost the attention to the detail that could come astray and so I think um, just like we value biodiversity it's incredibly important we value that in our people as well and they're lucky to have you at the same Absolutely, time yeah. to yeah. join it all in, together. Thank that's you. That's fascinating. We could, yeah. we could, we got to get you back on. Yeah, that, that I think great. that is. Yeah, yeah that's a, a, an update yearly type podcast. <laughs> it sure it? is. Yeah. Um, thank you. So, Faith, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that. Thank that's you. Really, yeah. really good. Thank you, Adrian and Steve. It's been a pleasure. All right, and guys, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.